Hello to all my fellow 101 History podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air again. I'm sure some of you were wondering where I'd been the last couple of days. Well, I do know this. Uh, my life can't revolve around podcasting, uh, but that's probably a good thing, too. As much as I enjoy doing it, I do realize and am well aware that uh, there are a lot of other important things in life that um, are of great importance and and in many instances uh, take precedent over podcasting. But uh, nonetheless, it's uh, good to be back on the air again. And we are still um, discussing, as you all know, about uh, George Wythe, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and the killing that shocked a new nation in Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered. I will tell you all this this much. Uh, After this uh, episode, uh, we will have one more episode to discuss in part one, and then we will be moving on to uh, part two. But uh, this uh, episode's focus is going to be on uh, the new capital of Virginia uh, being Richmond and how um, it's not only just a boom town. And of course, when we think of boom town, we would probably think um, everything's just great. Nothing could go wrong. But we will be learning about a lot of um, negative aspects of uh, Richmond during the uh, early years of it existence as the new uh, capital in Virginia, but how this boomtown life in Richmond also will um, heavily impact George Sweeney, or George With Sweeney, let alone uh, Mr. George With's grandnephew, and how the boomtown life of Richmond um, will be responsible for contributing to many of his um, bad decisions, as well as um, lifestyle that will um, over time uh, catch up with him to where the inevitable sadly does happen. So our um, leadoff question is the following. By the spring of 1806, what was Richmond's population? In other words, how far had uh, Richmond soared population-wise? Many, I won't, I will say this much, we're not talking the millions. But the number is between um, eight and 12,000. The answer is around 10,000. So the population is, has reached just around 10,000 by the spring of 1806. And this population is pretty diverse. It includes people from dozens of nations around the world, including um, enslaved African-Americans as well as freed blacks, And it also is home to one of the largest Jewish populations in America. As a matter of fact, uh, Richmond is the first to um, establish a Jewish synagogue um, for uh, those of the Jewish faith in America. So we have a a very, very um, broad diversity of uh, people in Richmond. Now, of course, when I say from dozens of nations, that's uh, multiple nations. Uh, Now, I do know that uh, one of the big um, exporters of um, goods that Richmond does ship out is um, coffee. Now, there are some other goods, obviously, but I do know that one of them is coffee. And I I say that because uh, Mr. With himself uh, was very um, big into drinking coffee each day, especially everyone in the household was. So, um, Richmond's population has grown steadily since 1780, uh, the year that the capital relocates from Williamsburg, and Richmond's growth is attributed to the fact that it's a river port city. So it's up there, um, even with the seaport cities of uh, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, 
Now, between 1800 and 1850, the percentage of people living in the United living in major U.S. cities or, or cities alone increases about 20 percent, but most notably, it's um, Richmond, Philadelphia, even uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia, uh, which is to the east of Richmond, New York City, and Boston uh, to the north, as well as Philadelphia. So we're um, a lot of these uh, seaport and uh, riverport cities are really seeing the rise in um, in population and. I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, how come so many people are flocking to the uh, seaport and riverport area or just wanting to make a new home life there? Well, think about this. Uh, the seaports and riverports are huge, um, or really the major vital hubs of uh, commercial activity where goods are coming in and goods are leaving out. So if you're looking for a place to... Um, to stay, and that's really your uh, main line of business, then why not uh, live along the uh, coast? So with Richmond's population on the rise, what kind of problems are going to, are also going to uh, contribute um, that um, will go hand in hand with uh, population, with the city's population on the rise? Well, let me, let me guys, let me ask you all this. Um, were there any kinds of uh, regulation if there were, um, they probably weren't the best regulations. Well, when I say regulation, what could I be referring to? How about housing, transportation, sanitation to health care? There are no such things as uh, nursing home facilities at this time. And and are there, uh, are there garbage trucks, I mean, that are coming by to pick up trash every day? Um, no, but then again, we don't have uh, such things as the modern-day automobile. So it is very fair to say that uh, people will leave their trash in huge piles to the point where, say, in the summertime, it's going to leave um, a bad odor. It's going to um, lead to uh, critters or let alone rodents like rats who are drawn to the smell um, especially if food is left out in the open that's gone to waste. Now, I know that doesn't sound pleasant, but that's really how it was um, in Richmond in the early days, and it probably was the same for some other um, sea, seaport and riverport towns, uh, cities as well. So, yes, there's sanitation is obviously an issue, but not just the health problems. And, and I'm sure many of you are wondering, what about where are, peop where are um, people living in Richmond? Well, many of them are living in boarding houses, and oftentimes you have five or ten people living together. So think about this. Um, not everyone has access to their own apartment suite. Not everyone has access to their own room, and that is one person per room. So, and even many people are living in warehouses as well, so... <laughs> They aren't the best conditions, but at the same time, this is what's available. And many of these people who are living in the opposite of where George Wythe resides, being in Shaco Hill, don't know any better. So it's pretty easy to, to assume and to um, understand and realize that people who are not living in the best parts of Richmond, that is, uh, the areas where... Um, where sanitation is bad, um, you know, there's housing, is, is homes are stacked upon each other, um, and uh, how do I say it, there's, 
there's just not a lot of good cleanliness. So basically, the people living there are not going to have the same kind of accessibility as George Wythe does. In other words, people living right along the, um, along the wharf, they don't have access to a well like Mr. Wythe does. What does Mr. Wythe have access to? Not just a well, but good, clean drinking water, and also good, clean water to uh, clean the fruits and vegetables, as well as being able to pour water, ice water, over him, over his head to um, basically, um, that was the equivalent of his version of a modern-day bath. So we're talking about a lot of inequities or disparities here, too. But the bigger problems are besides the uh, minimal regulation and housing and transportation and sanitation, the bigger problems, believe it or not, is the greater presence of bars to where gambling casinos, and, and we're not talking Las Vegas-style casinos, but they might as well have been the equivalent of what we now think of as a Las Vegas gambling casino in today's time, but they were there, and the presence of bars to gambling casinos did contribute heavily to high levels in crime, drunkenness, and rowdiness. So it is fair to say that Richmond, Virginia, at this point in time, is like the wild, wild west. Now, what facility became the direct source of Richmond's gaming problems? Taverns. Now, of course, when I think of taverns, I always think of, you know, Colonial Williamsburg. You know, you go in and have a nice, fine meal. After all, um, in the early 1770s, uh, from a book I read some years back on Jefferson, they said that um, seven shillings could get you a fine meal at a tavern. Well, if you have seven shillings and you're willing to pay for that fine meal, then more power to you. But it's not so much getting that fine meal at the tavern. What else do you think is going on at a tavern? If you're, depending on your status in society, if you are of the gentry and of the elite, you're going to be able to do what's called gambling. And that's and that involves a variety of things, playing cards, dice, anything that um, lures men of high status into a tavern where they can get away from home life for a few hours, have a nice glass of Madeira or, you know, port wine, but basically enjoy the good life and not be afraid to um, gamble away some money in hopes that in, that you come out on the winning side. I think you all will be surprised to know here shortly uh, just who was involved in gambling and yet still made um, a good killing, or I should say a profit off of it. But the, but by the time um, Richmond is the capital of, of, the, of Virginia, starting in 1780 and onward, Richmond's got many taverns. And the taverns cater to people from all walks of life, rich and poor, travelers, residents, sailors, and newly arrived immigrants. So basically the taverns are getting people from the whole nine yards, all walks of life. The taverns become haven for gambling, to drinking, womanizing. When I, th when I, think it, when I say womanizing, what, what would you all think of? Well, for starters, you know, Richmond's on the rise with population, and there are more men than women living in Richmond, and many of the men who are living in Richmond are living in the um, not-so-good parts of town, 
and they are probably working in the warehouse industry uh, where, where they are probably um, uh, transporting the tobacco into the barrels so that it could be shipped to its ultimate destination. They are um, probably sailors coming from one port, having left one port, arriving into Richmond, looking for new work. But many of these men are lacking something. They're lacking companionship. In other words, they don't have, they're lacking physical needs, but companionship, and that is they're lacking um, the presence of a woman. So the, whatever population of women are living in Richmond at this time, the good majority of them, and I hate to say this, but it is true, the majority of them are uh, prostitutes. After all, uh, prostitution sadly is the, the oldest profession in the world. And it was prevalent in colonial times, as well as into the uh, last years of George Wythe's life. And the city of Richmond had become a thriving spot for prostitutes, especially uh, within the uh, port um, industry. As I said earlier about uh, men coming from one port and into Richmond, looking not only just for work, but for some pleasure. So... It, it's it's fair game, but it's fair game in, a de, in, a, in many of dangerous ways. Where had prostitution thrived heavily in America? Well, it's an easy answer. Along the seaports, or in the, in the coastal um, regions, uh, but most notably the seaports, where business had flourished, especially in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Norfolk, and Richmond. And most prostitutes frequented men in Richmond's taverns, as well as on the streets and theaters. Large urban population increases often resulted in more male residents versus female, which I mentioned earlier. And it's very safe to say that the sea towns, as well as the riverport cities, uh, lured thousands of workers from shipping business, including sailors, whom had been at sea for one or more years without female relations. So, you know, think about it. You're probably very happy if you're, you know, a sailor. You're very happy to finally have arrived onto port, to have gotten a break from the from that rough life out on the ocean or on the river. You need some time to yourself. You just need some time to unwind. But if you, but if you're not a disciplined man at, at this time, it's very easy to get caught up in activity that um, that others would frown upon as not being um, as being immoral. Uh, inappropriate, um, or even scandalous behavior. Now, I should point out that um, sailors, when it comes to taverns and sailors, um, I had read a book on taverns um, some years back, and uh, tavern, many tavern innkeepers, or let alone um, proprietors who ran the taverns, were very hesitant about giving credit to sailors. And the reason for that was because they often viewed sailors as rough-looking men. Men whom, um, yes, had a job, but it wasn't the um, top-of-the-line job. It was more of a lower-tier job where they were always on the go from one, from one destination to another. They never really sat down in one area and basically chose to make that one area the place of their life. In other words... It's one thing to settle down somewhere, but the intention would have been to have uh, remained in that one place for 
as long as possible. We're not just talking one year. We're, we're, the goal would be to hope that, that John Smith, for example, would want to live in, say, Williamsburg for the rest of his life if it really merited it. So as for these sailors, if you gave them credit, guess what could happen? They could leave out of nowhere and never pay you back. And then if they were found not to have paid you back before they were ready to uh, depart out, they would hold up the rest of their crewmates and also delay their um, destination voyage from getting to its um, final uh, place within a timely manner. So tavern keepers at one time, most notably in the 17th and 18th century, depending on um, the colony that you lived in, were very smart in establishing credit limits as to how much they would lend a guest. In Massachusetts, I know, they determined that 10 pounds worth of credit was the maximum. Anything over 10 was no longer was no longer deemed salvageable to have uh, retrieved. So in the year of 1806, uh, the year that George Wythe passes away, Richmond was home to dozens of whorehouses, I know it doesn't sound pleasant, folks, but this is reality. And the majority of them were run by white men and women, but 18 of them were owned by African Americans, which included African American prostitutes. So prostitution was not confined to just one race. It was, con it was, um, it was uh, confined to um, whites and um, African Americans. Now, as for uh, George Wythe's grandnephew, George Wythe Sweeney, did he benefit from the prostitution industry? Uh, yes, he did. However, gambling would become young George Wythe Sweeney's greatest undoing. But the bottom line is, is that uh, young George Wythe Sweeney uh, was not immune from anything that he did, which, was, which in the eyes of others was deemed inappropriate, unbecoming, undoing uh, that simply was just not um, in the eyes of others you know should not have been tolerated but yet he was allowed to do whatever pleased him and and he would as I mentioned from an earlier podcast he basically came and left at any time of the day he wanted to this fella had no rules sadly the elder with may have been a little too nice to George with Sweeney thinking that, well, okay, this fellow's 17, 18 years old, maybe within a short period of time he will, you know, have learned his lessons. But shouldn't, there, but shouldn't something also come up here, folks? When George Wythe and Thomas Jefferson rewrote, along with Edmund Pendleton, when they rewrote many of uh, Virginia's new laws, or let alone they went about reforming the uh, legal code in Virginia, when it came to crime and punishments, wasn't that something very sensitive? And if I'm not mistaken, didn't Jefferson and Wythe decide that that hanging by death should be eliminated with the only exceptions of murder and treason? Well, what about um, stealing? What about um, theft um, or any other uh, crimes? Didn't they leave a lot on the table by easing the rules there, too? So in other words, you know, yes, George Wythe had seen hundreds of other young men um, fall under the same boat as his grandnephew had, and somehow they got their act together. Could it have been that maybe they got their act together because the laws were different at the time? Perhaps so. Maybe there were better 
effective means of deterrence to prevent many of those younger men from making the same mistakes. Given now that here we are, um, you know, 27 years after, or let alone 25, 27 years after um, the state of Virginia under Whiff and Jefferson's leadership had gone about revising many of Virginia's legal codes, isn't it safe to say that um, that crime itself is far more worse off than it was before the revisions took place? Absolutely, because while, yes, there may have been some crime in Williamsburg, it wasn't as bad as it's become now in Richmond. So it could be very well fair to say that with all the revisions that were made, while, yes, they may have been um, what you call revolutionary for their time, revisions and reforms don't always uh, turn out for the better. They may look great on paper, but they can lose their luster when you see um, acts of um, disobedience, acts of, um, what do you call it, um, defiance. You see acts of, um, what do you call it, engaging in inappropriate behavior. Basically, you're seeing act, bad acts, or, or let alone bad decisions from especially from young men, what, what does that tell you right there? That, hey, something maybe needs to be done to, to either go back and change the existing laws on records or tighten the laws to where, hey, maybe um, we need to go back to um, enforcing what was previously on the book. They're all tough questions, but we also have to remember, too, that... Um, that the times have changed now, and Williamsburg is no longer the capital. Williamsburg, um, you know, has lost a lot of its um, ambience, especially now that Richmond is the capital. Richmond's now the thriving city. There's that old saying, too, that old money and new money don't always go well hand in hand. And I think it's fair to say that, w that the old money that was confined in Williamsburg to the um, elite families of the Randolphs, the Custises, the Lees, the Carters, the Birds. Uh, all of the old money, basically, um, those families knew how to use their money. Of course, it may not have always been for the right reasons, but they knew how to use it. Now that the capitals moved to Richmond, you've got all this new money coming in. We're really not, we're, we're treating the money as if as if like there's no tomorrow. In other words, we're using it for all these illegal things, or not just illegal, but we're using it for towards activities that don't really yield meaningful results, especially like gambling, especially money that's going towards uh, taverns that tolerate the bad behavior from, from various aspects. So a lot has changed in 25 years from the time the capital was relocated from Williamsburg to Richmond. And yes, some people could say, well, maybe that change, some of the change has been for the better. But if you ask me, do you think the change has been for the better? No, it has not, because um, it, it's, it's just not a good scene. So um, gambling, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, well, is gambling something new in Virginia? Is it new to America? Actually, gambling in Virginia... Has been can be traced as far back as 1607, the year which the English established their first settlement in Virginia, being Jamestown. In the early 18th century, um, 
Virginia saw a rise among lotteries. And even lotteries themselves are nothing new. Of course, um, I know, for example, in Virginia, where I live, um, at one at one time there was no such thing as the Virginia lottery, but that came into play through our General Assembly, which instituted it back in the late 1980s. So the lottery system here in Virginia, as we know, the modern-day Virginia lottery system has been around for a little over 30 years, but in many ways it probably seems like it's been a around a lot longer. But what I do know about lotteries from um, the early years of Virginia's existence is that they were meant to, they their intentions were meant for individuals to financially raise money for private and public ventures. And lotteries, anybody could go about instituting a lottery. They were not confined to just the upper classes of society. Rich and poor in Virginia society ran lotteries to pay off personal debts. And one famous Virginian that I often think of who, who tried so hard in vain to institute a lottery, and he proposed it, and it was shot down by the Virginia General Assembly, just before he died, and I often wondered if that lottery had gone through, if, the, if his um, immediate family would have still been allowed to have lived in this home that still is here in Virginia today. It is a uh, world-renowned um, historical site. I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson. Now, not to get off track, Thomas Jefferson, of course, died 20 years after George Wythe did, but Thomas Jefferson died heavily in debt. He was probably close to $110,000 in debt, um, but he tried desperately to institute a lottery system that would help pay off as many of his existing debts as there were possible. Unfortunately, the Virginia General Assembly uh, vetoed it. Uh, they shot it down. And sadly, uh, the estate fell out of his family's hands. And um, it was a real crushing blow for him, especially to have to die the way he did, knowing that he um, was never able to pay off the debts that were still outstanding. But yes, um, the lotteries were not confined to one class of people. They were open to all Virginians, regardless of class status. As for those whom uh, regularly gambled... I do know that George Washington, for example, was a very, very um, heavy gambler. And somehow, whenever he gambled, he always struck gold. He had the gold touch. Um, he always seemed to make a fortune. And there were those who did, but there were many in um, 18th century time, for example, who were of well-to-do status who gambled away everything and never recovered. So those whom regularly gambled and won saw it as an opportunity to meet others and enhance their images by engaging in activities. So in other words, if you were a consistent winner like George Washington, why not meet up with, the, with other men of your uh, status and introduce them to the activities and also establish um, other means of connections, not just in the present, for in the future. And these um, activities obviously had no boundaries. Once you started winning, <laughs> would you want to stop? Probably not. And sadly for those who kept on losing, they were so desperate that they kept on at it. So basically, gambling had no boundaries, no matter how successful you were at it, or no matter how uh, bad off you were, 
but yet did not um, have a, what do you call it, definitive stopping point where, hey, I need to stop before I lose anymore. Sadly, there are a lot of people out there who, even in today's time, who gamble away everything and sadly um, are unable to face reality to where they take their life. Um, my wife and I learned a few years back when we went to Niagara Falls that the week before we arrived, uh, someone sadly did take their life at the gambling casino, which was nearby, and um, and went over the falls. It does happen, where sadly, where people um, cannot cope with the with the trauma of having lost everything. So, I don't gamble. Yes, I might play a Virginia Lotto ticket from time to time, but after one ticket and I don't win, I walk away. And I think that's what many of us should do, too, as well. Now, prior to and around 1775, I should point out that many Americans lost money on cards and dice. And this led George Washington, who by this point, around June of 1775, he officially becomes the Continental Army uh, commander, or I should say the, the chief commander of the Continental Army, and he has decided that at this point that he's, he has no other choice but to outlaw gambling amongst the all Continental Army troops. It makes practical sense. If he allows the, the troops to gamble, then how can, he, how can he guarantee that there would be any kind of discipline within the rank and file? That's just, that just would not be able to exist. His army's got to be thinking about not just themselves as individuals, but they have to be think they have to be thinking about the the entire regiment or the whole entire army as a whole without distraction. So, thank heavens Washington was smart enough by this point in time to outlaw gambling. But as for those who are not fighting in the war, it's probably fair to say that they're still finding ways to gamble. Because gambling alone did cause many personal problems. I did mention that just a moment ago. But yes, there were men whom lost money and ended up having tense arguments with their wives. And men with great losses often committed suicide. So gambling gambling's a disease, folks. And yet there are still people out there who spend their money like there's no tomorrow and don't realize what damage it has caused to their families, what it has done to themselves as an individual, and and the bad examples they are setting for those who see gambling as something that's advantageous, but yet, but yet when it comes to losing, they will not know how to go about handling the pressure. Why was it so hard for law enforcement officials and legislators to implement um, anti-gambling uh, laws into effect. Well, the legislators in Virginia are really the ones who, they're the ones that are heavily involved in gambling themselves. So if, if the legislators in the, um, by this time it's now the House of Delegates, not the House of Burgesses, but members of the House of Delegates like to gamble, Whenever they need a break from home life or a break from uh, working in the legislature, what do they do? They go to the taverns and gamble themselves. It's a double-edged sword. Okay, um, and Virginia has had history where they where the state did pass gambling laws, which I'll mention here in a moment. But the problem was that many of these men could not resist engaging in gentlemanlike activities 
Given for so long, the sport itself had become a way of life. It had become a norm of, in Virginia's society. And there were many Virginia women of upper-class status who liked to gamble as well. So it's not confined to just one gender, folks. Both genders are heavily involved in this uh, activity. And was George With Sweeney a compulsive gambler? Yes, he frequented many taverns along with casinos and racetracks throughout Richmond and lost great sums of money. In one setting, he was known to have lost $2,000. You know, my dad once said this. He said, you know, Kirk, if somebody was worth $50 million and they went to, um, to Las Vegas to gamble and they lost $1,000, say, playing blackjack, while $1,000 does seem like a, a loss, like a large amount of money to lose, if you're worth $50 million, you probably would be able to get away with being able to afford to lose $1,000. But the average family, if they lost $1,000 uh, in gambling, that's a lot of money to lose. And it might take some time just to be able to replenish that $1,000. So for many of these people, you either have money or you don't. But regardless whether you're in the upper class or in the lower classes of society, you're blowing away the money like there's no tomorrow. So, therefore, sadly, boundaries are just not in existence. So, in 1727, it was the first year where the Virginia um, House of Burgesses at that time forbid gaming in Virginia, but yet it yielded little success. Nice try, but didn't get anywhere. Now, as for 1803, that's the year which George With Sweeney uh, began living with his great uncle. And teenage gambling and drinking had been a huge problem for, in Richmond since the 1790s. So we should just keep in mind that this is not something that just happened overnight. This has been coming for a long time. But that's not to say, too, that in Williamsburg, I should point out that even young men, there were probably episodes where young men did gamble in Williamsburg. Who knows? Maybe it was not on the same level like it has now been in Richmond, but it did exist. Now, before and right around the time of George Wythe's death, did Richmond have uh, the nation's highest crime rate? Yes. The city had been torn apart from various crimes ranging from assaults, robberies, burglaries to murders. And, sad, and sadly, city leaders failed to come together in reaching agreements on how the population growth ought to be curbed. So in other words, people were just coming left and right and making their um, establishments. But yet, at the same time, as people are establishing a new life in Richmond, it's one thing to start a new life, but that doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. It doesn't mean that you're not going to become automatically law-abiding if you have no structure What's going to happen? You're going to take part not just so much in the gambling and the um, in the uh, drunkenness and the rowdiness. You're going to take. You're probably going to be involved in a handful of crimes like assaults, robberies, burglaries, and, and let alone murder. So when you don't have city leaders who are um, who are up to par on how to um, develop any kind of game plan to control the problems, what do you expect? You're going to expect nothing more than um, than an onslaught of issues that are going to continue to skyrocket to where um, to where it's just going to become a tolerable norm. Now, in 1806, 
the year George Wythe dies, 900 crimes have been committed in Richmond. That means a crime against one in every 11 residents of the community. That's a pretty startling number, folks. I mean, yes, there's only about 10,000 people living in Richmond, but if you think about it, 900 crimes committed and a crime against one in every 11 residents? Yeah, that's very frightening. I think it's fair to say that the safest place in Richmond is, is uh, Shaco Hill, but that's confined to the wealthy. But it's really the safest place. Anywhere else, you're pretty much left to fend for yourself. And it is fair to say still that, hey, Mr. With living in Shaco Hill, who would want to harm him? Yes, he's got a grandnephew who's, who doesn't have his act together, but why would he want to think in a million years that his grandnephew would want to inflict any harm on him? That's what we all would like to assume. Now, true or false, were most of Richmond's crimes committed by white males? About 56%. So the answer is true. It was confined, however, to the lower class population whom worked in the shipyards, the mills, tobacco warehouses. These people owned no property, which also meant they didn't pay taxes. So we automatically assume, okay, that if people are moving into Richmond, that they own some form of property. No. Does it also mean that they're paying taxes at the same time? No. They have, a, they have some form of place to live, but it's not in the best area. It's right in what we might call the slums or the impoverished areas, but this is where they're living. And yes, while they do have employment, that's great. But think about it. I hate to say this, but probably this 56% of the white population being in the lower class, they may not have the highest level of education and if they do have some education, that's great, but obviously it's not enough to, um, to uh, curb their um, appetite for um, inappropriate activity, uh, to say the least. Boarding houses were where the lower class people lived together in large groups. As I mentioned earlier, boarding houses were very frequent um, in Richmond. Had and here's a, a question of importance here. Had Virginia been known for its history of violence? Yes. The first recorded murder took place in 1619, 12 years after uh, Jamestown had been first settled. And how ironic that's the same year in 1619 when uh, the first legislative body of government was instituted in, uh, in the New World, right in Jamestown, Virginia, the House of Burgesses, or their, their early version of the General Assembly. But, but I did find it hard to believe that the first recorded murder in Virginia took place that same year. The murderers that often took place were mostly white. There were um, 52 white men were hung for murders between 1706 and 1784. So what did the city of Richmond construct in 1800 to go, to go about trying to um, modify the existing problem? So I will give the city of Richmond some form of credit here. They um, instituted a city jail being three stories high. Now think about this. This was six years before George Wythe dies. So in 1800, the start of the 19th century, a city jail was constructed that was three stories high. It was located at the corner of Main and 17th Streets. It was open on three sides. Why would the jail have been open on three sides? Because it allowed the outsiders to see those from within the prison confines. This setup 
meant to serve as a deterrent to future crime. So in other words, people from the outside could be looking at you, the prisoner on the inside, and those outsiders could say to themselves, all right, maybe seeing those people from the inside should remind us that, hey, we should not make the same mistakes that they have made. That's, you know, I would like to think that everybody from the outside would have thought that way. But who's to say that there were a good majority of people from the outside who probably ended up being on the inside? But nonetheless, you can't uh, fault the um, city leaders for constructing a unique um, jail um, building structure that did allow outsiders to see those from within uh, the inside of the confines. And, and hopefully those from the outside who were law-abiding people still remained on the right track and got the message that, hey, what I'm seeing on the inside should, should serve as a deterrent so that I myself from the outside don't end up on the inside like the rest of those people. Before George Wythe died, the jail itself held 118 inmates, 113 men and five women, 80% being white. Now, I should point out that it was 93 years ago, in 1928, that this city jail still remained in existence up until the late 1920s, and it was the state prison. So you think about it, it had a 128-year run. Did young George Wythe Sweeney spend most of his life, young life in solitude? I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, why, why, is he, why did he turn out this way? Yes, he did. He spent his pretty much all of his young life in solitude, meaning he was sheltered up until the age of 17 when he murdered his granduncle along with Michael Brown, the um, protege student who was living with George Wythe, whom uh, Wythe himself um, mentored. I don't know a whole lot about George with Sweeney other than based off of what I've read in this book. There hasn't been a whole lot uh, written about him, so we really don't know why he had been sheltered for so long. But it is fair to say that even in colonial days, that there were people out there who probably should not have been parents. So it is fair to say that George with Sweeney's parents allowed him to do things that were very unbecoming. They allowed him probably to turn out the way he had done. I, I honestly don't know. It's just my guess. But it is fair to say that there were instances in colonial days, as well as into the 19th century, where, where the family, let's say the vast majority of your family is normal, but yet you have those one or two family members who end up being the black sheep. Well, that's what happened with George Wythe Sweeney. He was the black sheep of the family, the outsider, who by 17 should have gotten his act together, but yet he didn't. He was behind, big time behind. So as for what happens on June 1st, 1806, um, Michael Brown, being Mr. Wythe's protege student, died one week after having been poisoned earlier. Remember, he was poisoned the same day on May 25th, just like um, George Wythe and Lydia Broadnax were. Lydia Broadnax survived. Michael Brown dies a week later. Of course, sadly, George Wythe will die another week later on June 8th. 
Now, also on June 1st, George Wythe met with his lawyer, Edmund Randolph, who also happened to be one of uh, Wythe's law students at William & Mary. So he's up there, just like with the John Marshall, Thomas Jefferson, Littleton Taswell, William Giles, um, to George Nicholas. He's up there in the ranks of, um, of, great, um, of great students who went on to have illustrious um, law and political careers, all thanks to George Wythe. But Edmund Randolph does meet with George Wythe, and they revise his will to where George Wythe Sweeney is no longer to where George Wythe Sweeney himself will no longer receive any inheritance whatsoever because the original stipulation had been that if Michael Brown and Lydia Broadnax died before George Wythe Sweeney, that Miss, that young Sweeney would have been entitled to the uh, possessions and to his share of the estate. If the other two had outlived Sweeney, then the opposite would have happened, but... But George Wythe was probably smart now to realize, knowing that the first words he said were, I am murdered, that, hey, I need to make some changes now because I don't know how much longer I have left to live, but I've got to remove my grandnephew from any inheritance. Even till the end of Wythe's life, now I should point out this real quick, when Mr. Wythe revised his, his will, what did he include in there? a specified certain number of prized personal items that were to be given to Thomas Jefferson. And how thoughtful that Mr. Wythe would do that, knowing just how much he revered um, Mr. Jefferson. Even up till the end of Wythe's life, Thomas Jefferson kept in close contact with his mentor, which also included reliving past accomplishments like Freedom of Religion Bill, which enabled people of all faiths to worship freely without interference from church and state. As George Wythe's life was coming to an end, he was still being remembered by those whom greatly benefited from his tutelage, like Jefferson and Edmund Randolph, along with others whom I mentioned earlier. Wythe had achieved fame in both Williamsburg and Richmond. His fame and honor began with the old in Williamsburg and ended with the new in Richmond, ranging from chairman of the Constitutional Convention to serving on the Chancery Court and becoming a respected member of the community. You know, here he is, yes, a respected member of his community, but yet why would someone want to poison him? Why? It just makes no sense. There are a lot of things sometimes in life that don't make sense that sadly happen for all the wrong reasons, and this is a good example. So, Richmond has seen some good but I hate to say this, the city has seen a lot of bad. I hate to say this, I think the bad outweighs the good. But yet, somehow, Mr. Wythe is still respected by a lot of people, which is a very, very good thing. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and we have learned a lot of interesting stuff that I'm sure many of you all probably didn't think went on in Richmond, but yet it did. And yet, Richmond was like no other... Um, was not exempt. A lot of the other well-known cities, even in the 19th century, had their issues. And as I mentioned, many of those cities like Boston and Philadelphia, Norfolk, even Charleston, South Carolina, they all had their um, issues, with not just with gambling, but with prostitution and um, crime along the seaport and riverport um, areas. It, was, it, it wasn't confined to one area. But 
for George Wythe, I'm sure he's got to wonder, with all these crimes that are being committed in Richmond, what can be done to stop this or to reduce the crime rate so that it doesn't become a long-term um, problematic norm? And here he is with very little time left to live and still one insisting that he had been murdered and that he was not infected with cholera. Of course, we will find out later on more about the doctors and why they, I mean, we've already established why they thought he had contracted cholera, but we know because he has a well that his, that he gets good water, that the water is used, it is clean and that it, um, that it, that it would not have infected him in, for all the wrong reasons. But we're going to le- learn in uh, future uh, parts why the decisions that were made, not just in the courtroom, but by the medical decision, um, impacted the final outcome, not just uh, for Virginia society, but, but, the, um, but the outcome that um, was one that uh, obviously sent uh, shockwaves, not just in Virginia, but across the nation. But when I'm back on the air with you all again next, we're going to be talking about um, how um, when George Wythe comes to Richmond in 1791, how he, re, how he um, makes a new name for himself, and how he goes about um, challenging the practice, or let alone the institution of slavery, how he will go about drastically reforming what he wants is abolition of, of the institution and how he is going left and right with uh, championing um, why slaves should be emancipated, why slaves should have the same rights as white people, why they should be entitled to an education, why they should be, um, why, why basically he wants their lives to have the same value as other people's lives. And, you know, that's also something that we're learning right now in, in the world today with what has happened in the last year and, and what we should be uh, listening to on programs um, to honor um, African Americans who have made um, immense uh, sacrifices for our country and who should not be forgotten as well. I mean, we have a lot of Americans in this country, regardless of race, who have made significant con- contributions to our country, but they should all, you know, be valued for what they um, had done, regardless of the time that they lived in. And George Wythe is, is no exception either, too. I mean, yes, he was a signer to the Declaration of Independence, but yet he did so much more. And his um, late mother wanted him to um, fight for those who could not have a say in their government, those who were destitute and poor, those who were of lower classes, and that also included slaves. So that's why this next, this next and final chapter of part one is going to be so important to talk about, because this is where we're going to get the, where we're going to see with break, break from the old guard and say, hey, we've got to think differently Yes, Virginia can still be a thriving state, but maybe it doesn't need to be so heavily dependent upon the institution of slavery, or let alone, maybe it should just, maybe we need to find ways to do away with it altogether. This is where the old and the new will collide. Well, I look forward to being back on the air again with you all, and uh, I hope that all of you, wherever you are, stay safe and um, take care.